You were never out of the fight. You were created for a time such as this. And you are now preparing to be sent into battle. God is calling you to be his disciple, to be formed in virtue and holiness. He has appointed you as an ambassador of his kingdom. To go and represent him to his people. And he's enlisted you as a soldier of Christ. To be sent out to fight for the good in this world. You are not made to make excuses. It's time for you to take extreme ownership for your life all of your life. It's time to rise up and finally be the man or woman you were created to be. Follow God. Lead others. And never surrender. It is time to begin seeking excellence. Nathan, <laughs> take it away. Yeah, so, you know, the, the second one is the longest one of the three. It is, it took me so many words to get it out. And I think like you, like you made the reference to going through a minefield, like there's, there's so much uh, just kind of like tenderness needed, especially when it was released, you know, several weeks ago at this point. Um, when things were really at the emotional height, I think, of uh, just following the, the murder of George Floyd and, and just kind of following everything. It, people were just, yeah, really worked up. And so to try to speak to a people who are really emotional is always tough. Any, any individual that you're speaking to that's, that's highly emotional and highly, you know, worked up or in a lot of pain is going to be very difficult to navigate. And especially what I tried to do, what I felt called to do throughout the letter was to challenge people who are hurting, you know, and it's just like when you have, uh, whether it's, you know, your kids playing a sport, tackle football for the first time and like things hurt, but it's like, well, you got to stay in the game, you know, and just encouraging that for the first time while trying to show the compassion and strength at the same time is, is never easy to balance. I don't think, but, um, this one, yeah, to wrote to my, my black friends and family, like you said, you know, kind of growing up on, on both sides there with the white mother and the black father, I had really interesting experiences being biracial and um, especially, yeah, with my black family. And I kind of talk about some of the difficulty in writing that to my black family and friends um, throughout the letter, just some of the challenges that I faced with that. Uh, but I think, you know, the, kind of opening up, like I talk about how when, when mourning the death of any black man who's... Um, you know, killed by the police before you even hear the story or what happened. Like I started to notice in myself that I had this subconscious shift happening in the way that I, I looked at and approached police officers. You know what I mean? Like I just, my view of them, my opinion of them, I just saw it decreasing, um, you know, just kind of getting worse over time. And it, it was weird for me because I'm a criminal justice major. So a lot of the friends I had in college went on to be, I was a criminal justice major, went on to be uh, police officers. And, you know, some of my best friends from college uh, either were or are police officers. And so I have family members who are police officers. My mom works in law enforcement. And so it was always this kind of like weird dichotomy. And on top of that, I have my army experience. So I have this like special connection with servicemen and women and people who are willing to lay down their lives uh, for the sake of protecting other people. Like it, there's just a special bond, you know, I've gotten out of many speeding tickets when they saw my military ID, you know, so mm -hmm. we have like this special bond there, but I still was just being influenced from what I think, you know, is a lot of the media and just society and, and social media 
but to kind of adopt this mindset that like cops are bad, you know? And so like I started, I'm glad that I took a couple weeks before I started writing at all because that allowed me to kind of process some of these things and start to realize like, which I think a lot of people need to do in the midst of this is we have these feelings and emotions and we have this, you know, defensiveness that comes up or we start to think of a people group as less or, you know, get more hateful towards them or have more disdain in our hearts. And it's like, wait a minute, let's evaluate the root of that. Is it justified? You know, like, is it is it a defense mechanism? Is it protective and necessary? Or is it a little bit excessive and maybe manipulated by outside forces? You know what I mean? Yeah, you had to discern that even like... <sighs> the the mostly healthy relationships you've had with servicemen and women now getting altered by again kind of a barrage of negativity and a one-sidedness one way or the other yeah and and you just you know one, one thing that i've always kind of realized in, in defense of police officers who are subject to a lot of hate kind of coming out of the gate in all these situations where it's like all of them are bad and all of them are negative is i've just always said you know like praise god that soldiers don't get treated like that because we have some horrific stories there's books written about some of the just horrible war crimes that american soldiers have committed and especially when you're talking about soldiers around the world but american soldiers even you know the stuff and then we're not just talking about like civil war era american soldiers like world war ii vietnam in iraq in afghanistan like we have done some atrocious things to the peoples of those countries and you know, we come home and people don't look at me and my, my American, my army uniform and say, oh, you're just like that, that bad one. You know what I mean? You're just like the bad ones who, who do this or that. And there's still bad people in the army today. There's bad people in every profession, you know? And I think it's just really sad that we immediately jump to this, like, all of them are bad. And, and the, I think, you know, you and I obviously love, like, philosophy and theology. And just, like, on a philosophical level, it's basically trying to extinguish a fire with the same flames, you know, and you're taking this mindset of, well, it's awful that cops look at black people and say that all of them are bad. But then on the other side, we're looking at one cop and saying, you know, you are all like this, the actions of one cop and saying all police officers are like this. And it's like, that's the same. You can't take the same. We're trying to rid that philosophy, rid society of that philosophy and that way of thinking. And we can't rid that, <laughs> rid society of that by promoting it and encouraging it and adopting it ourselves, you know? And, that, and that's why your message resonated with me and not to just perpetually stir the pot and how do we do an eye for an eye and, and we've been oppressed and we're going to oppress you now. And how do we find authentic healing? It's only through the gospel. And I think that came, that comes out a lot in your writing there of how do we find a healthy way to lead and to move the ball forward. That's actually going to actually going to bring healing, not just more resentment. Right. And that's kind of what I talked about with the, the balance of the emotional outrage versus logical leadership, you know, and just, it, I think, again, you know, kind of acknowledging the pain and the suffering, like so many people have gone through and just, you know, even in my own experiences of racism or feeling isolated and not being represented in different things that I've been in, which we can talk more about later, but that's, that pain is obviously real, you know, and I don't, I don't mean, and I, I try to in the letter, like acknowledge the fact that I'm not trying to demean that. I'm not trying to say just, Oh, just get over it. You know, cause that's the message of a lot of people. I think um, that, that want to say, just get over it. Like you get used to it, like whatever, just deal with it. Look at yeah. this, look at this individual who's overcome, you know, like you can do that too. And that's not the answer to just blanket say, you know, one person's made it out of the hood, like now everybody can, you know, but to point at an outlier, but also to say, you know, if we have to consider as a black community, we have to think about what is the desired outcome that we want. 
and what is the best way to approach it and, and, and achieve that, you know, instead of just out this outlash and outrage and just, you know, just like burning down cities where it was like the crime didn't even take place. You know, they, they might not have had a, a, a black police brutality incident, you know, in years in some of these smaller towns or smaller cities and stuff like that. And they're just rioting and looting and things like that. And, and it's not just black people that are doing that. Well, this is, that was the most frustrating thing for me with watching rioting and looting is that people are defending that. And it's like, you see, you see the videos of people running out of target with stuff. It's black people, white people, Hispanic people. And it's like, these are people and everybody's jumping to defend it. And it's like, these are people who aren't even affected by this. And we're defending their actions and allowing them to put like, it's on us. And they're looking at the black people in the video. And they're saying, well, that's what people do when they're upset. That's what people do when they're angry. And it's like, so we're allowing like us to be the scapegoat saying that black people aren't any better when they're angry than, than stealing from Target, burning down stores, stealing, you know, people's livelihoods, tearing down all this property. Black people aren't any, like the news is telling us black people aren't any better than that. That's what people do when they're angry, which is not what people do when they're angry, but that's what they're telling us that people do when they're angry. And we're letting people from other races take advantage of the, you know, the anger and, you know, the issues that we have with our society and the systems in our society. And it just doesn't make any sense to me how we can defend that and allow people to just take advantage of the situation. And in and, and the worst part, I think, and the most frustrating thing for me with the rioting and looting, going back to what is the desired outcome that we want is it just distracted from the conversation at hand. Right. Yeah. It completely derailed it, you know, and you love this. I'd love to see the, the videos that would surface eventually of, of people, you know, of black people going around the cities and stuff like that and being like, stop doing this. Like, we don't, we don't want that, you know? <laughs> and, so and there's, there's videos out there. There's, there's powerful videos of, of men calling out young men, like older men being like, what are we doing? Like, what are we doing? This is not the way. Right. Uh, you see like, again, a generation that maybe, was lacking in, in mentors, especially, um, like fatherhood of what, like, again, this does not help our cause at all. Right. Burning down your neighborhood does not help your cause. Burning down the business of a black man who's toiled for years to create his own restaurant, burning that down just out of spite serves no one in the long run. And yeah. And just anger. And, and you know, like, for me, I, I don't, I don't encourage revenge. I don't think that revenge is good, but that like the, the analogy that I always use for people is if like when, when, when nine 11 happened, right. And Osama bin Laden, Taliban, you know, attacked the world trade center in New York. We did not go and, and bomb Mexico. We didn't go and bomb Venezuela. You know, like we didn't bomb some random country. Like we went after Osama bin Laden and we killed him, you know, because he yeah. was the one who did it. And so I don't understand like exactly what you're saying where it's like, okay, Derek Chauvin killed George Floyd and now we're going to burn down, you know, this building or we're going to smash this guy's restaurant or this guy's store, you know, in the city of Cincinnati. Like, I'm like, where is the connect? Like, there's no logic. There's no, it doesn't make any sense. And there's no advantage that comes about from that. And it doesn't help. You know, I think so. at this point, the way that I view it in a lot of ways is that we're, we, we are, there are some systemic things that need to change. And, and you kind of acknowledge a little bit there with, uh, or you pointed out there, one of the, the results of that, I think, is the, the lack of fatherhood and the problems of fatherhood. And there's, you know, stuff we can get into with that as well. But in some ways, like we're in a very like uh, more ideological 
battle right now, you know, and a lot of the, if you watch like father Mike Schmitz and, and father Josh Johnson's conversation, like the, the father Josh Johnson's examples of, of racism that still exists, which are, you know, appalling and awful down in the South, especially there, there are people who like, he uses the example I'll never forget of the, the pool, the, the all white pool who doesn't allow black people to join the pool. And it's like, they have all the rules set in place, right? That it, it like systemically it's, it's illegal to discriminate, but it's somebody in the front office who accepts the applications, knows who they're from and trashes the one from black people. Like that's something that like that person's mind and heart needs to change. How do we, you know, like to a certain extent, like there's always going to be people who will go around the system we don't like we break the rules. I break rules all the time, you know. I've been breaking rules since I was eleven. No, even more before that. I was getting. I got a lot of demerits in kindergarten, you know. Like I was breaking rules from the time I was five, probably before that. So it's like people are going to break the rules. They want to break the rules. But how do we kind of bat- battle this? The ideologies and these philosophies that people have, these prejudices and stereotypes, and it's like going out and acting like that when you're upset and like tearing down the city. Like all you're doing is perpetuating the same beliefs, the same, you know what they're like you said the low expectations that people have and and what like do you think the person who's running that pool now going and seeing whether all they see is the black people you know kind of jumping ahead to the jackie robinson example when they see the news they don't see the white people walking out of the tvs they just see the black people when they see that do you think that they're now going to change their mind and be like oh we should i was wrong you know like i should we should let we should let black people into the pool like this is what were we thinking you know what i mean like and that's unfortunately the media is not going to show the, the the black people who are doing good things. And, the, and probably in the South, they're not highlighting some of that stuff, you know, but the, the ones who make it and are doing good things in the community and are upstanding citizens, that's not being shown. But how do we avoid the negative stuff being shown? You avoid doing it. <laughs> you know, like that's the easiest way to, to guarantee that it. That's the way that I try to prevent, you know, rioting and looting and, and, and this like bad, bad behavior and bad activities being shown on the news. I just don't participate in it. Well, as you, you've told me before, if it bleeds, it leads. And we've got turds yeah. in the media that they don't want the country to move forward. They want us to stay in silos and they want us to just kind of churn up the hate so that they have more stuff to report. And um, you bet it, it's on such a heart to heart level that any kind of conversion, any kind of change happens in terms of softening the heart towards any kind of prejudice, prejudgment you may have towards another people. And um, we'll come back to Jackie Robinson because his stories and and the, the stuff we've talked about regarding um, him is fantastic. But in terms of representation, like that's something my own eyes have been opened to as the years have gone on. Um, the importance of seeing someone like you in a career, in entertainment, um, in the church as something that I can strive for too. So whether that is a professor or a person in the military whether that's in, in, in comic book movies, um, you know, there's plenty of white superheroes. There's plenty of superheroes that look like me because I'm so jacked. But, you know, the importance of seeing like, uh, you know, Miles Morales is one of my favorite new comic book characters that have come out in recent times. This, again, the new Spider-Man, like the Into the Spider-Verse movie is, is amazing. We could do a whole hour on that. Although I can nerd out on that. But even in the church, to walk in, Father Josh Johnson's talked about this. If I only see white saints, statues and, and stained glass and pictures of white saints and only white Jesus, you know, there's, again, my own eyes have kind of been um, awakened to the reality of the importance of a diverse representation when it comes to 
seeing these things. And I think in your own life, when it came to like the military and striving to move up the ranks there, um, you didn't always see that. No, definitely not. And, and I mean, and it goes even further back for me personally, back to back to school. You know, we had uh, in my grade school that I went through kindergarten through eighth grade, we had one black teacher at the school. She's our fifth grade teacher. Uh, she wasn't even by like I wasn't even in her class. I think I had her for like religion and maybe one other class throughout the day. Cause we kind of like were dabbling with switching classrooms in fifth grade. Um, but yeah, you know, you just, you don't see it. And I think it's something that is so, it's one of those many things that people point to and just like, oh, we'll just get over it. You just get used to it. You get used to being the only person in your skin color in the room and yeah, yeah. or whatever. And, and, and that's why, you know, like sometimes I see myself sometimes, sometimes I can see myself getting, yeah, I don't know if it's, it's like frustrated or questioning when people always share like, oh, this is the first black female this, or this is the first black male this. But then sometimes I take the time to think about it and remember how hard it is to pay forward that way, you know, and to really push forward and be the first of your whatever it might be to do something. It is it is hard. You know, it's hard to do that. And it's hard to not have the representation. I think one of the most commonly used examples is when President Obama got elected. And, you know, like, I obviously have my disagreements with him politically, but I was pretty excited at, at I think it was like 15, just to like, you know, the, the the story that I've heard a few times is just that when we were younger, kid, parents would ask, you know, your kids, like, what do you want to be when you grow up? And, and they really didn't know if anything was possible. Like, parents were telling their kids, like, you can be whatever you want to be when you grow up. But you didn't really know if that was true or not until until that. That was one of the, the highest offices in the land, you know. And it's like, well, we can be a lot of things in between this and that. Where we are, where we are now, and president, but can we be the president of the United States? And so to finally achieve that, and you see that that happens for women. You know, it happens for a lot of different people. It's not just something that only the black community experiences. But yeah, going through the military was especially rough. I think going into the infantry and just kind of knowing, like, okay, you know, like I'm not going to see a lot of black people out here. Um, Hispanics, like they, they actually had like a. Uh, I don't know if it's like, we're, it's still affirmative action kind of thing, but they were basically trying to diversify the branch and would force people to go infantry um, from, you know, different races and things like that. It was kind of, it was kind of interesting. I remember we had a, a black dude in my, uh, a black dude and an Asian guy in my range school platoon who were forced to go infantry. And they had it literally last, like 17th out of 17th on their list. But um, it was, it's definitely hard to not see instructors that look like you, to have to constantly question and wonder because of that, you know, when you get treated differently and things. And you have to put up with so many different jokes and comments and stuff that people now probably realize weren't great and weren't appreciated, you know. But you can only, you can only do so much. I had to fight. You have people coming from all around the country. I remember getting an argument with a guy, with a cadet when I was a sophomore in college, a cadet from – it was a cadet and a chief from uh, – he was from Louisiana and Alabama, and they had this argument that the Civil War wasn't remotely about slavery. It was only about states' rights, you know? And you, you get the experience of the different ways people have learned American history and, and their outlook on things, and you try to make the change that you can, but when you're, when you're alone – you know, just like it's hard. It was hard out there being alone as a Catholic most of the time in my army career. It's also hard being the only person that looks like you and not knowing who can I really look up to that's going to be the same as me that that can relate to me and and kind of like help guide me through this. And it's uh yeah, it's it's something that's harder than a lot of people realize. I think. And I think we are at a time where a lot of people are willing to listen more than they were, uh, more willing to reevaluate how. A, 
you know, the tunnel vision maybe I had growing up and the, again, the jokes I told or just the, the stuff I took for granted of, you know, only rarely being the only person of X in a room. Um, right. It, it takes, again, getting out of your comfort zone, either physically, like being geographically in a different location. Like I went to, I got to go to um, Sierra Leone in Africa of blood diamond fame uh, to do some work with Catholic Relief Services. And surprise, I'm only the white guy in the bush for like miles and miles around. <laughs> and all these like little kids coming up to me and wanting to touch my hair and touch my skin. And it's just, you know, it's funny. It's awesome. Some of them were afraid of me because like I'm the, the first white person they've ever seen. Right. And, but that feeling of like, wow, I, there is no one else that looks like me for miles around. And, um, even if it's not a malicious thing, sometimes we assume it's all, it's always malicious. Um, you just the, again, the, the empathy, I think we can all learn to grow in and be more mindful of. Right. And I think that that's, that's what we all need right now is, is you know, we're going to talk about this in every video is the need for self-reflection, self-evaluation to kind of see where we stand and what we struggle with. And just the time to take, to have, be patient with other people who are willing to listen and learn. You know, I see so many people, it seems like th that are just shouting and screaming at people who are actually sitting and like willing to listen and learn, you know, and we can't fault, we can't fault. We can only fault people to a certain extent for the way that they were conditioned and raised when they grew up. You know, now I agree and I, I strongly promote and believe, and I, I talked about this in letter one, that there's a certain point where you have to take control and responsibility for your philosophy, where you're at in life, your morals, you know, your faith, like how you treat other people, all of that. There comes a time where you have to appreciate or you have to take stewardship and responsibility over that. But, you know, there's a certain thing where if somebody was raised in, in Montana or even, even in Pennsylvania and they're out in the country and they've never had any black people around them and the only stories they've heard is stuff they've seen on the news, stuff they see on BET or MTV, and then you have what their parents are telling them, which could be complete nonsense and falsehood, stuff they could be learning in schools, which could be complete nonsense and falsehood, then they have these beliefs that, you know, are very contradictory to the truth. And they don't, you know, they're going to be, they, they could be hateful. They could have bad stereotypes, could have bad prejudices. And, and that those things are not good. And we need to acknowledge that. Just like it's not good for a lot of black people who are in the inner city who get conditioned to think, oh, all I can do is, is sell drugs, commit crime. You know, like you don't raise your kids. Like there's a philosophy that, that exists there too that's really negative that is placed on black people. And have we have these own stereotypes within our own community. But at some point as a, as a young black man, you have to say, okay, I don't need to be like my father was. I don't need to be like this person was. I don't need to do this. I don't need to follow in their footsteps. Just like there's a lot of white people now have to say, I don't have to follow in my father's footsteps and be prejudiced and stereotypes. They have stereotypes against people. And it's just time for us to take the, the, the time to evaluate where are we at? Why do we believe what we believe? Why do we treat people the way that we do? Why do we look at people certain ways and, and not? How do we value or evaluate, you know, how do I look at myself? How do I hold myself responsible and accountable for my decisions and actions, you know, and just taking all of that kind of into, into account and taking responsibility and, and extreme ownership for where we're at so we can move forward as a, as a society, you know? Well, it's the whole, you know, clean up your own room before you dare mm. try to change the world. Um, we have to look inward and see again, where have I fallen short? You know, everyone, everyone in the world needs to ask that first before we start pointing a finger and shouting on the internet, where have I fallen short? 
Where do, where do I have room to grow? Where do I, I need the grace of God for my own healing so that I'm not projecting and I'm not um, prejudging people short of actually knowing anything about them? How do I, how do I again, clean, my, clean up my own room before I dare go out and change the world there? And so that's what I love too about your writing. And I think you're, you're kind of personal ethos and what you, how you want to encourage people like, hey, let's, let's move forward not just stay entrenched in um, the clan warfare right now. Right. Cause it's so easy to do that, you know? And like you talked about earlier with some of the polarization of the media and stuff like that, like they don't, they're not going to make, like I put that, I put out in the, in the letter that there's no room for a 24 hour news cycle in, uh, in a world that's unified, you know, and believes the same things. And that's, that's what, you know, Bobby was, it was something that really stuck out to me as I was really reflecting and praying about and just kind of going through the whole circumstance of the murder of George Floyd is I'm like, man, this is like the first time that I can remember in a long time where almost everybody agrees. Yeah. Yeah. You know, like, it's like mind blowing and nobody really like pointed that out. Everybody just kind of goes past it. It's just like, Oh yeah, whatever, you know, but it's like, wait a minute. Like, everybody's yelling and screaming. It's like, what are we arguing about? You know, like everybody agrees that like Derek Chauvin should go to prison. Like nobody's doubting that there's a video. It's very clear. Like my man was handcuffed. Like we should be taking advantage of the fact that we all agree. There's the more white people than ever before are, are sitting down and open to listening and open to having conversations. Politicians, you know, like people are kind of acknowledging some of this stuff. People are learning at, at rates we've never seen before. And instead, like we, the, what we allowed the, the world, society, you know, social media to do was, oh, but look at these people over here fighting and, you know, rioting and looting. Instead of the peaceful protests, we had to look at that. And then we had to argue about whether or not that was justified, you know, and that was the polarization that kind of came from that. It's just like, man, like we literally all agree right now that this shouldn't have happened. And then what, what happens as a result of more rioting and looting and stuff like that, more people get killed. There's more violence. There's violence against police officers. There's violence against protesters. There's violence against people committing crimes, you know, and because it's like, you know, part of, part of the thing I think people don't understand that are very, that become very hateful and anti-cop and screaming in their faces and doing all this stuff is like, they are, they are human beings, you know? <laughs> oh, we got a guest spot. <laughs> they are human beings though, you know? And, and if you continue to scare them and, and, and just c- constantly get them more and more on edge and a job that's already on edge and a job that already, you know, induces a lot of PTSD and causes a lot of psychological problems. And you just continue to push them and push them and push them. Like you're not going to have any better luck at, at getting them to be uh, any, uh, you know, more patient or, you know, able to make better decisions or any of that stuff. And it just doesn't, again, like doesn't help you to achieve the outcome that you want by having more disciplined and uh, just better police officers by just, you know, being hateful, causing more crime, being outrageous and constantly putting them more and more on edge. They're not going to make better decisions after that, whether you want it or not. And we need, we need to have them. And so it's like, how can we instead have conversations with how can we work with you to make your job better and be better as a society? No, it's just, let's just condemn all of them and push them to the limit so that they will either walk out or freak out or whatever it might be. Part of it too is again the the um, you keep us all locked down with this COVID global situation for so long. It just becomes like a, a boiling pot of tension, and people are going to lash out in all sorts of different ways. And again, people can't go to church. People can't go to places of healthy community and right. and places that would keep us in check. It kind of rubber bands in, in the other way, but you know. 
back to your own life experience, having a black father and a white mother, again, you're listening to Kenny Chesney and Tupac. Your fashion sense is also split down the middle, but you, so you've got a unique perspective of one foot in one world, one foot in another, at the same time being told, well, you're not black or you're not really white. And what that does to you as a young person, um, and so I just think you got such a unique story when it comes to all that. For sure. And I praise God that my mom worked several jobs so I could go to Catholic school because that was the only thing that really saved my identity from just like going haywire. You know, like who knows what would have become of me if I didn't do that. Um, but yeah, I think it was it was one of the hardest things in my life. And especially growing up, you know, like 10 to 13 is always hard for everybody. But, it, you know, that, those were definitely the hardest years of my life. My parents' marriage was, def- was the worst during those few years, I think. And um, yeah, you're just kind of coming of age and, and, you know, we were 10, <laughs> I would say when I was 10, I went to a 50 cent concert, get rich or die triad tour, which is not a lot of 10 year olds get exposed to, especially those in Catholic schools. But I also started watching Chappelle show and South Park and all this stuff. We started, you know, just getting into these more like adult things at, at 10. And so, you know, that was when we started using the N word and like started to really come me and my like two friends that were black at the school, like we started to really, you know, I had other friends obviously, but by two, there was like three black friends in our, in our group. And it's like, we really started to kind of come alive and be more aware of, of race. And so like, as I'm growing older, I'm starting to realize, okay, like how I'm seeing all these different things in society and the culture. And it's like, well, how am I supposed to act? Like, how am I supposed to speak? How am I supposed to, you know, dress and, and all these different things. And so being rejected just two years prior to that was when I was made fun of for being black by a white kid at school. You know, it was a couple of years after H towns, about 12 or whatever, when I first got called like the N word face to face, like, you know, me and my nephew, I'll never forget that night, but, um, yeah, just having some of these experiences. And then it's like, okay, well, I'm being rejected by the white people and I'm kind of like being defiant and going against that and kind of adopting more of this, you know, like my black identity. But then when I go to black friends and family, it's like, oh, you're not black because of this or that. And even worse, you know, I had I had white people telling me that too. Like, oh, you're not black because you don't do this or you don't talk black or you don't do, and it's like, you know, it took me it took me a few years to kind of sit back and reflect. I never liked it, but I didn't know why. Then finally I started to really reflect on what, what does that mean? Like, what is, when you tell me, you know, that I'm not black because I don't talk this way or dress this way, like, what does being black mean to you? Because to me, you know, as we've talked about before, my simple definition, and especially why, because people will question like, oh, sometimes you, you, you adopt more of your black identity than your white identity. I'm like, yo, if we went back, you know, 100 years, <laughs> 80 years, and there was, you know, segregation was still in place, I would have to go to the colored water fountain. There's no, there's no questions asked. I wouldn't be able to go and be like, oh no, my mom's white. You know, I'm half white. Like nobody would care about that. Right. Don't worry, <laughs> so, everyone. Yeah, yeah, don't worry. Don't worry, guys. I'm good. You know, be like, I'm cool. <laughs> no, it wouldn't happen. So it's like, yeah, I'm more black than I am white to a certain extent, you know, because I have brown skin. And so it's just, it's just one of those things that was kind of funny, but um, it just it was so difficult. It's, you know, I just some of that pain in the letter to go back to the black community and be rejected by that. And it's like, as I started to get more deep into that philosophy and what the cause of that is, I started to realize that we are perpetuating the same beliefs in our own community, in the black community, that white people have on us that you're not black if you're if you're educated. You're not black if you if you if you speak, you know, people I have family members and stuff who don't like to say that 
you know, speaking properly. That's like not a good way to say it because you're saying people are speaking improperly. And it's like, well, there is a right and wrong way to speak English. You know, like we, I got graded in school on how well I could, you know, set up sentence structures and, and follow the, the guidelines of the English language. And you have that, you know, and so it's like, what <laughs> that's this is kind of what it is but it, we have this thing in in the in the country that and it's it's decreased definitely over the years i've heard it a lot less but it's just like you're not black if you do this or that you're not black if you you know and it's it, the the things that that typically disqualify you from being considered black are the positive traits and the things that are needed to be successful in, in the united states you know, it's the education, it's, it's being able to present well and speak well and express yourself clearly and to, you know, get good grades in school and things like that, like that. The things, the stereotypes that we kind of perpetuate and kind of going back to the, you know, the soft bigotry of low expectations that people place on us. It's like, well, we can't continue to place those on ourselves and ostracize anybody who goes and succeeds, you know? Cause that was, that was one of the hardest parts for me is I had, I had a lot of family members who I grew up with, who I saw go off to school and go off to college or friends, you know, who I saw go off to college and decided to just keep smoking weed. And I stopped smoking weed. They kept smoking weed through school and then eventually dropped out of school, uh, dropped out of college, you know, or dropped out of high school, whatever it might be. And it's like, we've just made different decisions. And then I went forward and tried to, you know, make a way for people and try to be an example and a hero to some of these younger people in my family and neighborhood and stuff like that by going to become an infantry officer, graduating from college, graduating from ranger school, and just kind of, you know, developing that and, and changing society in that way by being an example. And then you have people who are telling you that you're not black who, who decided to, you know, perpetuate more stereotypes or do, you know, do nothing, essentially, like not go and pave a way for anybody, not go and set an example and just really just kind of gave up hope in, in their own lives because of, because of drugs or because of complacency and just wanted to play like the victim. And it's like, wow, we are, we are literally shifting. And instead of, we're like, you know, ostracizing the people we should be looking up to, a lot of the people who are making a way and are successful and things like that. And then the people who we shouldn't be idolizing, that's who we, we make our heroes. Yeah. 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 There's so, there's so much there, man. Um. Yeah. And I think one of the big things that I tried to, one of the big things I try to hit on in the letter too, is just that the ancestors and the people that came before us, you know, and, and I think it's so important to, to acknowledge the fact that the things that they went through to create the, the, the way forward for us were so much more difficult than the things that we have to overcome today. You know, like it, it, it's it's sad to me how little we acknowledge the fact that the country has come so far when it comes to racism and prejudice and injustice. You know, we still have a long way to go. I'm not I'm not denying that. But can we it, just like you do with anybody, any any institution, organization, whatever that's trying to improve itself, which I think you can't deny that America has, has greatly improved itself over the years that that you have to just acknowledge that you have to acknowledge the change, you know, and I talk about in the letter how army officers a hundred years ago, even if you watch a movie like red tails or, you know, um, any of those, any of those like war movies that highlight black soldiers or pilots or whatever it might be like the things that they had to go through to act like now I'm not trying to downplay the fact that it was hard to not have any white people or not to have any black ranger instructors and things like that, like to not be represented to deal with the jokes and the comments, this and that, like, it was tough, but to compare that to like where you're just like flat out called the N word all the time and denied promotions and denied things because of your skin color, like is, 
it, I mean, it's just not the same. Like, I can't sit here and act like my struggle today. Like, that's what held me back. Like, I didn't, I mean, I got promoted, but if I didn't get promoted, I couldn't be like, oh, it's the same. Like, nothing's changed over the last hundred years. America is founded on racism, still racist country. You know, it's, it's racist at its core. Like, that's just not true. You know, we can't speak in such extreme language. But those ancestors, those people who came before us 100 years ago, 150 years ago, 200 years ago, who endured slavery, who endured the civil rights movement, who endured some of these, you know, just horrific, difficult times in our country, you know, like, I have to be grateful for what they did. And I have to acknowledge the fact that they sacrificed so much so that they could have so little, you know, like to think about, to think about people who escaped, risked their lives to escape slavery, to literally start at zero. Like, if you escape as a slave, like, you have nothing, you know? Like, you're literally, like, you're starting with nothing. And there's not, you know, I don't, I think with government assistance and the way that we have the country set up now, there's nobody who legitimately has nothing. You know, like, we have, in, in every city, even the homeless, you know, in America today have more access to more things than a slave, you know, in the early 1800s who escapes would have had. And so to think about that and to say, okay, you know, they were literally willing to risk their entire lives to start with zero, and you still have people who were trying to do that in, you know, in illegal immigration and stuff. You know, people who are escaping from other countries that are willing to risk their lives to come to America to start with, you know, $100 or, or nothing at all. When you realize that, it's like, okay, let's, let's put everything back in its proper context and say, what can we do with what we have? You know, not saying that we shouldn't continue to fight for change, especially in the, the criminal justice system. There's a lot of problems. You can read some of the statistics and things on that. It's awful. And, and I agree that it's awful. I think that it's contributed to some of the followlessness and has broken up the, the homes and families in the black community at, at a crazy, crazy disproportionate rate. Um, but, you know, that, that being said, we can't change that overnight. But what we can change, what we can change sooner, we can all, like you said before, what we can always change the fastest is ourselves. And so, like, as a black community, can we stop and think, what can we do right now to, to improve the system? How can I honor my ancestors? Just like I want to honor the saints, you know, in the church. Like, how can I best honor the people who came before me, literally laid down their lives so that I could have the opportunities to do this? And you don't honor them by going and dropping out of college because you want to smoke weed. You don't honor, you know, one of my favorite motivational speakers, Eric Thomas, talks about this all the time. When he's speaking to black students in colleges, he's like, dog, like, you, you, you didn't get here. Like, Martin Luther King didn't die, so you could come here and party. You know what I mean? Like, you just, be, and it's sad because there is that low expectation of so many times in the black community. Like, I remember even my own dad, like, was just pumped that I got into college. Like, he didn't care where I got into. He didn't care what, like, I got a scholarship and I got into college. Like, he was pumped, you know? And it's cool. Like, my dad dropped out of high school. So, like, I get it, you know? But we have to, at some point, then raise, when I got to my college campus, I said, okay, nothing, like, it doesn't matter anymore. Like, anything I had to overcome, my family drama, you know, whatever it might be, anything that I had to deal with before, we are here now. And I would tell basketball players and other, other black kids on campus, like, yo, like, you got to pull your pants up, man. Like, we're not in the hood anymore. Like, we're at college now. You know, like, we made it out of there. Like, you, you now have an opportunity and an equal playing field to take advantage of this. And, you know, I wanted to share that with as many people as I could. Did Big Brothers, Big Sisters, and, and went down to LED and kind of organized the PAL Center Police Activities League down in Frederick, Maryland. And uh, got to volunteer and, you know, just give a lot of time to, to the inner city kids down, down in Frederick uh, throughout my four years at school because I was just so passionate about, like, they need people to tell them that. They need people to say that you don't have to, like, you can succeed. 
and it's up to you, you know, in a lot of ways for you to succeed. Like slavery is despair, you know, like being in the middle of Afghanistan where, you know, I've seen it, I've seen the villages and, and the, the people and the children there who literally have no chance of success, barring an absolute miracle. Like they're not going to make it, you know, they will never be the president of the United States. They will never be any, you know, like they have no access to go to law school or anything like that. Like they have no chance to, I mean, even grade school doesn't exist. You know what I mean? Like there's no sixth grade in your town, my dude, like you have no chance. And I've seen these third world countries and things like that. And it saddens me like to my core to see people in the United States acting like a, a black man's experience of, of America is that of a slave or is that of a kid in Afghanistan or is that of a kid, even if you look at most of Africa, you know what I mean? Like the, the, pe- the experience that people have there and just actual despair, actual hopelessness where you can't make it out, you can't succeed at all uh, is really, really sad to me. And I think that we owe it to the people who've come before us and have fought and died for us to have these chances to really make the most of every opportunity that we've been given. Dude, you are a beast. That is awesome. <laughs> so my father-in-law got Ancestry.com for like a, a two-week free trial for COVID. He had nothing else to do. And he went to town researching his side of the family. He got bored, started looking at my side of the family. And yeah, to see it on paper, the migration of people, um, we want to know where we come from. I think that's a heartache too of if you find yourself black in America, it's like, you may not necessarily have access to that. You may not know, like your story may not be able to be traced, but the fact is you are where you are and you can see like all these people went through whatever they did. Some lives were harder than others. Some trials were like literally arriving at Staten Island with a briefcase of, you know, maybe a couple clothes and that's it. And you got to start your life over. Did, Did they hand that on to their to me just to party away and not care to not push for excellence, um, to not always strive to make myself better and my community and the world better. So the responsibility handed to us, whether we, whether we asked for it or not, mm-hmm. you know, what am I going to do with this day? What am I going to do with my life? And I love in your writing too, you talk about, you kind of, you kind of rounded out with the example of Jackie Robinson. And I want you to, to land the plane there with him. Oh man. Yeah. 42. I highly recommend the movie 42. And this, this is a scene that comes out of it. Uh, and he's talking to, it's kind of towards the beginning of the movie and the owner of the Brooklyn Dodgers branch, Ricky is, is talking to, to Jackie in his office and he's kind of being rude to him because he's trying to like get under his skin a little bit, you know? And, um, he's talking to him about like, I'm thinking about bringing you up to the big leagues you know, bringing you up to major league baseball. And he's like, but I need to know, are you going to, are you going to be able to control yourself? You know, are you going to be able to keep your emotions under control, control your temper and things like that? And, and Jackie, there's like this pivotal moment. It's my favorite moment in the whole movie. There's some great moments in this movie, but he says, Jackie challenges branch. He says, you want a player that doesn't have the courage to fight back. And he says, no, I want a player who has the courage not to fight back. You know, and then he goes on to talk about how if you echo a curse with a curse, so here only yours. If you lose your temper, they're going to say the Negro doesn't belong here. The Negro isn't good enough. You know, he says we only win if the world's convinced of two things, that you are a fine gentleman and a great baseball player. You know, when you think about people like Jackie Robinson, who who came before us, and this points right back to what I was talking about with the ancestor stuff, is the things that he went through. When you watch that movie and see the way that he was taunted and called out. And he's in these crowds full of white people. His teammates wouldn't respect him. You know, like he dealt with so much stuff 
Um, and just the way that he kind of carried himself and the way that he handled that, you know, like, and he could have, we find ourselves in, in a, in a lesser, but similar situation, I think today with some of these experiences that we have. And it's like, he could have freaked out the first time somebody called him the N word, he could have swung on the dude. He could have, you know, started to fight people that, and it would have been done. We would have never made it if he did, if he did that, you know, but like the people, and, and it's, it's a shame to me again, that we like mock people who have that discipline, who have that control and just, in some ways, like quietly go forward and do their thing and really break those stereotypes and break the barriers. And he did that because he was so good and because he was disciplined, he was of outstanding moral character, you know, and he was able to do that. And, and that's what I feel like is the core thing that we need to do within the black community and that we need our white friends and, and family members and, and people to, to support and encourage is just to succeed, you know, like it's not the, the final answer, but it, it helps a lot, you know, to go. And I can't tell you how many guys I've met in the army who changed over time as they got to experience me more and more who were raised in the South or raised in, you know, country areas where they weren't exposed to many black people. They joined the infantry where they weren't exposed to many black people. And it's easy. It's one thing to have, you know, other black enlisted soldiers where it's like you're in, you're a squad leader, a white guy from the country, you got a black soldier in your in your squad or whatever, you know, to like continue on thinking those stereotypes. When you see a black officer who you really respect, who graduated from ranger school, who's done some things, you know, that it changed people, you know, and that's what we have to do, I think, is to really take that internal responsibility and say, okay, do I, like, you can look at, you can look at our heroes, you can look at Rosa Parks, you can look at Martin Luther King, you can look at even Malcolm X and you know, Jackie Robinson or Jesse Owens, and you can look at all these different heroes. And it's like, okay, how did they, what did they do? How did they change society? You know, did they change society by going out, acting a fool? Did they change society by going and blowing their opportunities that they got to go to school and go to college or whatever it might be? No, like they, they didn't act like that, you know? And when you look at some of the stereotypes and things that um, we talked about earlier and some of the low expectations and, and the stereotypes that we have that we impose on ourselves and that, you know, a lot of times white people have for black people, like if you watch 42, like Jackie spoke much like I do, you know, like he did not, he did not speak any type of, you know, the way that we would call hood or whatever today, like he spoke, he spoke properly and he, he did his thing and the heroes that we had, they were just, yeah, they just got after and everything they did and they really pursued excellence across the board you know they got he was married and was a good father and he uh he went to church and he uh you know pushed himself physically beyond his perceived limits and was also just yeah an outstanding individual and gave a lot of hope to a lot of people and you get to see in the movie how there's a lot of white people and a lot of black people whose perceptions of the world change because of what jackie robinson did and that's what we need more of i think we need more leaders who are willing to step up and say we can be better than this we can show you know we can prove these people people wrong who think that that we're not any good or we're not capable of, of being successful you know like uh we talked about the uh the 1925 uh u.s army war college study that that came out and said do you, do you have that quote memorized off the top of your head i believe so i'm hopefully i don't mess it up i can i can find it quick if you uh, not like blow it up but i know it's it's blacks are mentally inferior subservient by nature and cowardly in the face of danger they're therefore unfit for combat and that was a 1925 U.S. Army War College study that came out and said that. And, like, I'll never forget. The reason why I have it memorized is because I thought about it all the time, especially when I was in ranger school, especially when I had to do things again, especially when it was cold, dark, wet, you know, whatever. It's like, well, I got to prove these people wrong, you know, and that's what Jackie did. And that's what I try to emulate and what I think we need to inspire and encourage more of 
it's just like, okay, you know, there's hatred out there in the world. There's, there's people who doubt us. And in a similar way, like we have to live beyond reproach like that as Christians as well. Right. We have to take our faith and say, okay, you know, once I, I remember being playing basketball when I was in college and it's like when people would say, uh, you know, once I started leading Bible study and speaking on my faith and stuff like that, like, yo, you can't, you can't fight with people like that anymore. Like you can't argue, you know, you gotta watch how you are because people are looking at you like you're going to be the example, you know? So people look at you a little bit differently and we have to take it. It sucks sometimes to take that extreme ownership and to acknowledge the fact that, you know, I'm a person of influence. I'm somebody that people are going to look to as an example and you got to take deeper responsibility, but that's what's needed in the world today. And so are you going to buck up and do it or not? You know? And that's the thing. It's like uh, the the cards we were dealt may not, it may not be fair. A lot of life is not fair. Um, a lot of it doesn't give us the best way to start right out the gate. But again, what are you going to do with that? Are you going to mope and play a victim and then get angry and go into an eye for an eye and burn the whole thing down? Or are you going to, again, try to clean up your own room, uh, learn and grow, strive for excellence. And, um, like you said, live beyond reproach, which is so difficult to do. It's it's our lesser angels. It's our like base human nature to, if we get punched, we punch back, you know, right. there's absolutely, again, a just defense and a, a time to do so. But when it comes to, again, Jackie Robinson's example, it's like, you're plenty strong. You could throw a punch back. That's not in question. It's, are you man enough to not throw a punch back? Because then my own ugliness, if I'm the oppressor, if I'm the one yelling insults, if I'm the one trying to demean a person and that guy diffuses it, it's my own ugliness. It's my own hatred exposed. Right. You know, if it, otherwise the cycle continues and then we never get out. But again, that is, is it holds up a mirror to anyone who's, who's throwing the insults, anyone who's trying to bring another person down. And, but again, that is, uh, that takes the, the inner fortitude to know yourself and to know that, uh, and I don't think I, it's so difficult to do without faith, to do without, um, the grace of God to give you literally that grace under pressure. Yeah. No, you need it. That's, that's the only place that, that type of strength and discipline can come from. And so I'm excited for part three. Uh, your letters already out there to be read, those who seek.org. And that's going to be to the church, correct? Yeah. To, to Christians. You know, your first letter was to your white family and friends. This one was to your black family and friends. And again, open letters to anyone who wants to read it. It's excellent writing. The third I'm excited to talk with you about soon as well is to the church, uh, how we can learn and grow from everything that's going on to be a better body of Christ together. Yeah, for sure. No, I'm excited. That, it's my favorite one, so I can't wait to talk about it. <laughs>